Hi everyone and welcome to this podcast on how to discuss the emotional aspects of diabetes in routine care following a recent webinar titled Weaving Psychology into Routine Diabetes Consultation, Why and How? I would like to introduce our guest today, Jennifer Halliday, who is an Associate Research Fellow and PhD candidate at the Australian Centre for Behavioural Research in Diabetes. Jennifer's research has focused on the psychological well-being of adults with diabetes and barriers and enablers to screening for emotional problems in routine diabetes care. She's currently working on research, training and tools to better support health professionals with identifying and addressing diabetes-related emotional problems. She's an author of the NDSS Diabetes and Emotional Health Handbook and Toolkit. The learning objectives for this podcast will be firstly to understand the importance of discussing emotional health with people living with diabetes during a consultation, and secondly, to identify resources to facilitate conversation and help support people with diabetes experiencing emotional distress. So hello, Jennifer, and how are you today? I'm well, thanks, Jan. Great. Jennifer, we might start with the first question. It's been shown that people with diabetes experience emotional problems such as anxiety, diabetes, distress and depression. And these emotions have also been linked to reduced self-care and worsening biomedical outcomes. So I just wonder if there's any data on how often health professionals ask people with diabetes about their emotions or emotional health. Yeah, there's quite a bit actually. Um, a couple of studies that immediately come to mind are the DAWN2 study and a study conducted by our own team at the Australian Centre for Behavioural Research in Diabetes. Um, so the DAWN2 study is a the DAWN Attitudes, Wishes and Needs study um, and that was conducted overseas um, with health professionals from 17 different countries. Um, there are about 4,700 um, healthcare professionals that took part in this survey. So it was quite a large survey. And they asked health professionals about how often they ask people with diabetes um, during clinical consultations about how diabetes affects their lives. And 51% um, of the people um, said that most or more than most of the time they um, ask their patients about this. Um, and they also asked how often they talk about psychological problems with those who are experiencing problems. And 54% said that they ask most or all people. Um, so that's telling us that only half health only half of health professionals are asking about emotional issues and only half of it are doing something when they know that they're is a problem that exists. Um, and this finding is pretty consistent with what people with diabetes tell us as well. So when we asked 440 adults with diabetes whether their health professional have it, had ever asked them about their feelings and personal experience of living with diabetes, 51% of people with type 1 diabetes and 60% of people with type 2 diabetes had asked that been asked this question at least once. So fairly consistent, you know, people with diabetes and health professionals saying about half of them are being asked and half of them aren't. Right. Okay. So what are some of the barriers in terms of a professional start, health professionals starting a, um, the conversation in this area? 
Um, there's many things that could be a barrier to starting a conversation about mental health. Um, most of the research in the past has focused on individual barriers. So these are things like the health professional feeling that they don't have enough training or resources or time to focus on emotional problems. Um, also health professionals report that they don't feel confident enough to ask or that they don't know what to do if a problem is raised. So they worry it's going to open up a can of worms that they won't be able to contain, so to speak. Um, so we've been working with organisations like the ADEA and NDSS over the past five years or so to create resources for health professionals to support them in overcoming some of these more personal barriers. Um, but increasingly as well, we're starting to understand that the barriers aren't just at this individual level. So there are other things going on that are related to the broader healthcare context. Um, so to do with the workplace or to do with funding or the amount of referral options that are suitable and available. So we're analysing some data on this at the moment from a national survey that we um, conducted recently. Um, we collected data last year and um, we're not quite ready to share the results yet, um, but we do hope to publish them later this year. So um, if that's something that's of interest to you, do keep an ear out. Great, thank you. I'm sure that our listeners will be looking forward to seeing that. So tell me, how often do you find that people want to discuss their emotions with health professionals but were not able to listen? Um, so in the study that I mentioned earlier, where we asked people with diabetes about their experiences of having conversations with their health professionals about the psychological aspects of diabetes, we found that about 25% of people with type 1 diabetes and about 47% of people with type 2 diabetes wanted to have a conversation about their feelings and personal experience of diabetes. Um, and not surprisingly, the people who wanted to talk the most um, were ha having higher levels of diabetes distress than those who didn't want to talk. So it's kind of showing that the people who want to talk are often the people who need to talk as well. Great, thank you for that. Uh, now, in one of your studies, it mentions that a substantial portion of people with type 2 express a desire to talk with the health professionals about the impact of diabetes on their sex life. Educators know that achieving target blood glucose ranges obviously help alleviate the physical symptoms, but how do you recommend that diabetes educators start this conversation and help people to work through the emotional aspect of it? Yeah, um, it was quite an interesting finding, actually. Um, in the study, we gave people a list of seven different topics and we asked them uh, which ones they wanted to talk about so they could tick seven or they could tick one or none. Um, so the option that was most commonly chosen was actually how diabetes affects my mood. Um, this was selected by about uh, a third of participants. Um, but the question about um, how diabetes affects their sex life sex lives was selected by 25% of people with type 2 diabetes. So that's one in four people. So that's still pretty high. Um, and for people with type 1 diabetes, it was 17%, so a little bit lower. Some of my colleagues at the ACBRD have been looking into sexual dysfunction a little bit among people with diabetes. Um, they did publish a paper in 2018. Uh, it was led by Dr. Adriana Ventura. Um, historically, I believe there's been a lot of research into the physical aspects of sexual dysfunction in diabetes. As, as you are probably aware, it's quite a common complication of diabetes, both for men and women. But 
Dr. Adriana Ventura's study found that sexual dysfunction is also associated with depression, anxiety and diabetes distress. So there does seem to be um, some emotional connections as well. Sexual dysfunction can be quite a difficult thing for to talk about. Um, in particular, research has shown that men can be quite reluctant to talk about the symptoms with a health professional. So if it does come up, just, um, of course, be sensitive and compassionate in the way you respond. Reassure them that it's common for people with diabetes um, to have problems like these and that they have your support. And, of course, explore with them um, what exactly are the issues for them. So, for example, are they having these physical symptoms such as, you know, erectile dysfunction in men or um, lubrication or pain issues in women or is it related to lower desire or something else? Because obviously the way they respond is going to inform what you do next. Thank you for that. It is certainly a difficult area, isn't it? Yeah. I mentioned in the in the introduction that you created a toolkit to help empower and motivate health professionals to support people living with diabetes experiencing psychological problems. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about these tools, please. Sure. Um, so in collaboration with the NDSS, the National Diabetes Services Scheme, we developed a diabetes and emotional health handbook and toolkit for health professionals. Uh, so this was launched a few years ago in 2016, but we are actually working on a revised edition at the moment. So uh, that should be out later this year, we hope. Um, so the handbook includes chapters on a number of psychological problems that adults with diabetes may experience. So this includes things like diabetes distress, fear of hypoglycemia, disordered eating and depression. The toolkit includes screening questionnaires for each of the topics that are covered in the handbook. So you can photocopy them for use in your clinical practice. They also have fact sheets to go along with them. Um, for each of the topics. So after you've had a conversation, you can give them some written information to read and take home with them. Um, all of these resources can be accessed for free um, from the NDSS website, but there's also a web link to them on our ACBRD website. So that's cbrd.org.au. So Jennifer, is training actually required to be able to use the materials or can an educator review the handbook on their own? We've tried to write the materials so that health professionals can use it on their own without extra training. Uh, it is quite a big book though, um, so don't, don't be daunted, daunted when you look at it. Um, we've tried to present it in a way that health professionals should be able to dip in and out easily to find the information they need. So we don't necessarily expect that people will read it from cover to cover, although some people do like to do that and that's fine too. So for example, each emotional problem has its own chapter. Um, so if you're specifically interested in diabetes distress, for example, you can go straight to that chapter. Um, we also use a 7A's guide to, I guess, step people through um, how they might go about identifying and then addressing a problem. So for instance, if we're looking at diabetes distress, um, the first step in the model would be aware. So that's what signs would you look for? And then the next is ask, so what questions might you ask? So um, it gives suggestions for open-ended questions. Um, the next step is assess, so uh, what screening tool can you use? And there's a copy of the screening tool in there as well and so on um, through the seven steps of the 7As model. I'm wondering if you can give us an example of how this handbook and other NDSS materials can be used in a sample consultation, for example. Yeah, sure. So we generally suggest that 
um, you would start with the diabetes distress chapter, although you might also like to start by reading the communication chapter if you feel like you want to brush up on some of those skills too. Um, we usually start recommending um, the diabetes distress chapter for a few reasons. Uh, first, because it's the most common emotional problem that people with diabetes um, experience. About one in three people that you see in your clinical practice are likely to have elevated diabetes distress. But also because the problems are diabetes specific and that's the bread and butter of what you do. Uh, so there are some things that likely you can do to help the person to support them, um, whether that's making some changes to the diabetes management plan or helping them to problem solve, or just lending a listening ear and letting them know that they're not alone. Uh, a good place to start is simply by open, asking an open-ended question, uh, such as what's the most difficult part of living with diabetes for you? And listen, because what they say could be very insightful. Uh, you might also like to try to use the problem areas in diabetes scale. So you can find that in the handbook and the toolkit. Um, and using this, the 20 items in the paid scale will give you a clearer picture of exactly what are the biggest problem areas for that person. And so then you can focus in on those particular areas with them to um, problem solve and find some um, ways to help overcome those issues that they're experiencing. Thank you for that. Now, lastly, I wonder if, that if there's someone listening who might be hesitant to bring up a conversation about emotional health with their client, what words of encouragement can you give them in particular? Sometimes a person just needs someone to listen and to show some care and compassion. Uh, these are skills you've already got and, you know, you, you can't do the work that you're doing without them. So you already have those and so have confidence in the skills that you already have. Secondly, I'd say to remember you don't have to solve the problems for the person. Work with them to solve the problems, um, to help them find solutions that will work for them rather than giving them advice about what you think you should do. This may take a few sessions, but you can always bring them back if you need more time. You don't have to do it all at once. Third, it takes time and practice to grow new skills and it's okay to start small. So if you just want to start out by asking a few clients, if you went open-ended questions while you build some confidence, then that's fine. It's a good place to start. And finally, just remember it's okay to refer the person on if something feels too big for you, if it's outside your scope of training. Um, so, for example, if you become concerned that a client has depression, you can link them in with their GP and a psychologist if they're open to seeing a psychologist. Um, it's a really good idea to keep a list of referral ha options handy so that you're prepared if you do come across something that you feel needs to be referred on. Jennifer, thank you once again. That covers all that I wanted to ask you today and it's really been great to talk to you and thank you for your time. You're welcome, Jan. Thanks for having me today. And I'd also like to say thank you to listeners for taking the time to listen to this podcast. To obtain CPD credit for the podcast, please go to the ADA Learning Management System at learning.adea.com.au and complete a feedback and evaluation. So until next time, goodbye. <laughs>